Hi there, it's James Eek, and you're listening to Warrior's Way Podcast. This is episode 70. The relationship between stress and performance has been known for about a century in psychology. It's called the Yerkes-Dodson Law. While the psychologists Yerkes and Dodson could not have known it 100 years ago, they were actually tracking the impacts of the HPA axis, the circuitry that secretes stress hormones when the amygdala gets triggered. This is a different way of thinking about how the brain operates to help or hurt our performance, whether at work, in learning, in a sport, in any domain of ability. There are three main states depicted in the law. Disentanglement, frazzle, and flow. Each of these has powerful impacts on a person's ability to perform at their best. Disentanglement and frazzle torpedo our efforts, while flow lets them soar. Workplaces the world over are rife with people struck in disengagement. They're bored with their jobs, uninspired and disinterested. They have little to no motivation to give their best, instead just doing well enough to keep the job. Studies of employee engagement find that in top-performing organizations, there are 10 times more fully engaged workers than disengaged. Well, in average-performing outfits, there are just two engaged employees for every disengaged one. The engaged employees are more productive, give better attention to customers, and are more loyal to the organization. As we move from boredom toward the optimal zone on the performance arc. The brain triggers increasing levels of stress hormones, and we enter the range of good stress, where our performance picks up. Challenges like getting motivated to reach a goal or being called on to exhibit your best skills or a team's race to meet a deadline focus our attention and enlist our best efforts on the job at hand. Good stress gets us engaged, enthused, and motivated and mobilizes just enough of the stress hormones, cortisol, and adrenaline, along with beneficial brain chemicals like dopamine, to do the job effectively. Cortisol and adrenaline have both protective and harmful impacts, and good stress mobilizes their benefits. But when demands become too great for us to handle, when the pressure overwhelms us, too much to do with too little time or support, we enter the zone of bad stress. Just beyond the optimal zone at the top of the performance arc, there's a tipping point where our brain secretes too many stress hormones and they start to interfere with our ability to work well, to learn, to innovate, to listen, and to plan effectively. The cost of chronic stress go well beyond performance. In this zone, what's technically called the allostatic load means the damaging effects of stress hormones predominate. Too high, too high levels of these hormones over too long a period throw neuroendocrine functions off kilter and create imbalances in the immune and nervous systems. So we're, we're more susceptible to illness and have trouble thinking clearly. Our body clock becomes confused and we sleep poorly. If stress becomes a chronic fixture in our lives, it can make us more susceptible to disease. Scientists find that repeatedly having to face a range of different stressful events will do it. 
So will one chronic source of stress, like an abrasive coworker that we never adjust to. Another cause is when we keep ruminating about the things that upset us. For example, waking up in the middle of the night and obsessing about it, and so failing to turn down the volume on the stress response. Chronic overwhelm can also harm the hippocampus, which is crucial for learning. This is where short-term memories like what we've just heard or read are converted to long-term memories so we can recall them later. The hippocampus is extraordinarily rich in receptors for cortisol, so our capacity to learn is very vulnerable to stress. If we have constant stress in our lives, this flood of cortisol actually disconnects existing neural networks. We can have memory loss. This kind of extreme memory loss has been seen in clinical conditions like post-traumatic stress disorder and extreme depression. Where we want to be on the Yerkes-Dogson arc is in the zone of optimal performance known as flow in research of the University of Chicago. Flow represents a peak of self-regulation, the maximal harnessing of emotions and the performance or in the service of performance or learning. In flow, we channel positive emotions in an energetic pursuit of the task at hand. Our focus is undistracted, and we feel a spontaneous joy or even rapture. The flow concept emerged from research where people were asked to describe a time they outdid themselves and achieved their personal best. People describe moments from a wide range of domains of expertise, from basketball to ballet to chest and brain surgery. No matter the specifics, the underlying state they described was one and the same. The chief characteristic of flow include rapt, unbreakable concentration, a nimble flexibility in responding to changing challenges, executing at the top of your skill level, and taking pleasure in what you're doing, joy. That last hallmark strongly suggests that if the brain scans were done of people while in flow, we might expect to see notable left prefrontal activation. If brain chemistry were assayed, we would likely find higher levels of mood and performance-enhancing compounds like dopamine. This optimal performance zone has been called a state of neural harmony, where the disparate areas of the brain are in sync, working together. This is also seen as a state of maximum cognitive efficiency. Getting into flow lets you use whatever talent you may have at peak levels. People who have mastered a domain of expertise and who operate at the top of their game typically have practiced a minimum of 10,000 hours and are often world-class in their performance. Tellingly, when such experts are engaged in their skill, whatever it may be, their overall levels of brain arousal tend to become lower, suggesting that for them, this particular activity has become relatively effortless, even at its peak. An early brain study suggested that while people are are in flow, only those brain areas relevant to the activity at hand are activated. This contrasts with the brain of a person who is bored. Then you see randomly scattered neural activation, rather than a sharp delineation of activity in the areas uh, relevant to the task. 
In the brain of a person who is stressed, you find lots of activity in the emotional circuitry, which is relevant to the task at hand and which suggests an anxious distractedness. An organization will be top performing to the extent to which its employees can contribute their best skills at full force. The more moments of flow, or even just staying in the zone of engagement and motivation, the better. There are several pathways to flow. One, adjust demands to fit the person's skills. If you manage people's work, try to gauge their optimal levels of challenge. If they're underengaged, increase the challenge in ways that make their work more interesting. For instance, by giving a stretch assignment. If they are overwhelmed, reduce the demand and give them more support, whether emotional or logistic. Two, practice the relevant expertise to raise skills to meet a higher level of demand. And three, enhance the concentration abilities so you can pay more attention because attention itself is a pathway into the flow stage. Finally, we need to notice when we, or others, have left the zone of positive stress and peak performance so we can apply the apt remedy. There are several indicators to watch for. The most obvious is performance decline. You can't do the task as well whether the metric may be for measuring it. Another is wandering attention, loss of focus, or boredom. And there are more subtle clues that can show up before a noticeable performance decrement. For example, someone who seems off compared to how they normally do things, or who seem very rigid in how they respond rather than considering alternatives, or who's cranky and easily perturbed any of which might signal that anxiety is impairing their cognitive efficiency. The formula for eliciting flow indicates a balance between the demands of the situation and the person's skills. Very often, flow occurs when we are challenged to use our abilities to their utmost. But just where that optimal point will be varies wildly from person to person. I was talking about the flow and the performance arc with a military jet pilot. And he told me that what would be a zone of extreme frazzle for most people is where jet pilots get into the flow. But that's because they qualify as a, that to qualify, sorry, as a jet pilot, your reaction time has to be in the 99th percentile and almost superhuman quickness. And he said, we operate on a adrenaline. And that's where the fun is for them. The general strategy for enhancing the likelihood of flow is to regularly practice methods that enhance concentration and relax you physiologically. Treat these methods like you would your fitness routine. Do them every day or as many days as you can. For example, I like to meditate every morning. And I think it helps me stay in a positive, calm, and more focused frame of mind through most of the day. If you're in a high-stress job, you can benefit from regularly giving your brain and your body the chance to recover and relax. Meditation is only one of the methods for getting relaxed. The key point is to find one you like and practice it regularly. 
the more you can break the cycle of the right prefrontal capture by the amygdala, amygdala, the freer you'll be able to activate the beneficial circuitry of the left prefrontal cortex. If you do regular practice like mindfulness, the greater activation of left hemisphere arousal seems to become more prominent over time. And the biggest change seems to be in the first months of practice. So far, the strongest data point on this right-to-left prefrontal shift is the research that Richard Davidson did with John Kabat-Zinn, where they had people in high-stress workplace practice mindfulness. They are currently repeating the study to be sure it replicates and to understand better the conditions that facilitate the benefits of a practice like mindfulness. How often or how long do you need to practice to see neural or physical shifts? Do some kinds of people benefit more than, than others? These are the kind of questions we need more research to answer. Another question, apart from this anti-stress benefit, is how you can enhance concentration ability. Concentration is mental skill, and every skill can be enhanced by practice. But with the escalation in distractions we all face these days, this becomes a crucial issue in the workplace. The more we're distracted, the less effective we become. Cognitive neuroscientists like Davidson are turning their attention to classical methods of meditation, which are, from the cognitive perspective, training exercises for a keener attentional focus. There are a multitude of meditation methods in the European and Asian spiritual traditions, and many can be seen essentially as a way of building concentration, quite apart from their spiritual function. The cardinal rule of all concentration enhancement techniques is to focus on A, and whenever your mind wanders off to topic B, or C, or D, or E, or F, and you realize that it has wandered, bring it back to A again. Every time you bring the wandering mind back to a concentrated state, you're enhancing the muscle of concentration. It's like being on a Nautilus machine and doing repetitions for a muscle, only you're strengthening a muscle of the mind. Attention. So, this was from an article called The Sweet Spot for Achievement. What's the relationship between stress and performance? And I think it's a great article. A lot of words in there that I was stumbling on, <laughs> but it was a great article. Um, mindfulness, or the idea of being present in the moment, is of huge importance. And I know I've mentioned this before. Let's face it, we only have right now, like it or not. You can argue the point, but you're going to fall on deaf ears. This is what we've got. The past is gone. The future is always in motion. But right now, right here and right now, is not only what we have, but the only thing that, to be honest, that really matters. When we start to see this, we can start to understand that we can accept the right that right now and we can accept it right now, or we can run from it. Or maybe it's better called hiding from it. And you don't want to hide from your mind. Or life. Undoubtedly, you know people who live in the past. 
They make themselves sick thinking about the wrongs that they have done, that the wrongs that others have done to them, and the endless drama that lives in holding on to all of that. But when we start to learn about mindfulness or living in the moment, it changes the way we see and react to most things. In time, it changes the way we react and see everything. So how do you do this? How do you get into the flow, as the article says? Well, the easiest thing for most people is simply to breathe. Well, yeah, buddy, I'm already breathing. You might be thinking to yourself, but yeah, you probably are, but you're probably letting it just run itself. What I'm talking about instead is conscious breathing. Something as simple as sitting quietly and counting 10 inhalations and 10 exhalations. Something like that can make a profound difference in your day in and your day out kind of life. You might think, I don't need meditation. Or you might think, I have no time for this. Or whatever. And really, you need to get rid of that kind of thinking right away. When it comes down to it, you are all that you've got and you are all that you can control. Meditation and mindfulness aren't going to make you into some kind of a flake. What it will do is make you more balanced. You become more calm, more present in your life, and you'll be able to see what life actually is all about. This moment. I think another great tool for being in the moment believe it or not, (laughs) is jujitsu. Nothing I've come across yet in terms of martial arts or physical exercise puts you in the moment or forces you into it in quite the way as jujitsu does. And this is thanks to the very real situation of having someone trying to pin you to the mats, put full weight on you, and otherwise do you harm. You can't be thinking about your work, your bills, or anything. And you do so, and what you'll be doing is tapping or squealing in shock when a choker armbar is slapped on. Jiu-jitsu forces you into the moment. Jiu-jitsu is all about getting into that flow the article talks about. It's about chilling out and breathing when in conflict. It's about being in the here and now. Of course, this isn't necessarily easy. Meditation isn't, and jiu-jitsu certainly isn't. At least not at first. But with time and practice, magic does happen. Hard work pays off. The best thing about all this kind of training is that you don't need any special equipment. You just need you and the desire to make the most of your life that you can. I don't know about you, but I think that I'm worth that. What about you? All right, so with that, let's go on to the question of the week. What do you say? (laughs) All right, so today's question is, all this talk about being a better you and being some kind of evolved person thanks to training is all very well and good, but how do you stick with that when life throws you a curveball and things really suck? Well, that's a great question. Um, But that is exactly when you need to make sure that you're putting your training into real action. 
Um, Curveballs don't make life easy. Life isn't easy. Believe me, I've been at this for decades and been through my share of really terrible times. But you have to trust your training. You have to continue to follow through with everything that is good and best in this life. It's easy to fall prey to negativity. It's easy to pull, be pulled under by others. It's easy to be judgmental of people. And it's easy to fall to darkness. The thing is that you have responsibility and ability to one thing only. Yourself. So you, even right now, can choose to let that curveball derail you. You can choose to give in to the dark side. You can make all of those people who have done you wrong pay for it. Or you can simply stay true to yourself, your training, and your understanding that there is something better. And to keep going, to keep walking. Leave the past behind. I myself choose the light. I choose to let go and keep positive, And I choose never to give up. So there you go. I hope you're training in a good school with good people and learning to be better every day. If not, start now. Be better. Never give up. And maybe make this world a little better thanks to seeing things better. And when life throws you a curveball, just keep going. Be better than it. So there you go. Thanks for the question. All right, and I think we are going to tie things up. Um, if you're enjoying this podcast, we're into season two now, as some of you are aware. Um, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening to this podcast. That'd be greatly appreciated. Um, if you are listening to it on the Apple Podcasts, if you can leave a review, especially if it's a nice one, um, that would be great. I really appreciate it, and it means a lot to me when I, I see those on there. Because as you know, these things are free, and they take a lot of work to get done. And I guess my pay is seeing that people like it. <laughs> um, that said, we also have a Patreon page for anybody who wants to support Warriors Way Podcast and what we're trying to do. Um, you can find us on Patreon. Just search for Warriors Way Podcast. Uh, the idea that I have is that I will be uploading videos, mostly like instructional martial arts videos, um, maybe a few other things, meditation, different things. Um, and that'll be built up as time goes on. Um, and then the other thing to keep your eye looking for is I am going to be releasing some Warriors Way podcast t-shirts. Um, one is almost ready to go. It's pretty cool, I think. It is Warriors Way Podcast Fight Club. And uh, I think it makes a snazzy shirt. So I will probably be posting that on Instagram and Facebook and our website. So you can, if you haven't heard yet, we have a Facebook page. Um, we also post stuff for Warriors Way Podcast on Instagram, but I do it under my website, or my, uh, sorry, my martial arts school. So look for the Eek Academy of Martial Arts on Instagram. On Facebook, there's a Warriors Way Podcast page, but you can also look for 
all of my stuff on the Eek Academy of Martial Arts Facebook page. And I throw stuff on all of them. I'm not one of those guys that sits on it all day doing it, so don't expect it. But I do <laughs> put stuff on there regularly, whatever regularly means. Um, <laughs> and with that, I think we'll try, just draw it all to a close. Thanks a lot for listening. For those of you that have been listening since the beginning, thank you so very much. I hope you're still enjoying it. If you have any ideas of um, topics that you would like to hear about, like this week's came to me from my student and listener, Jordan. Um, He's always given me great stuff. So thanks a lot, Jordan. Um, And if you have any questions of the week, please send those on too, and we'll get them covered on here when we can. So until next time, get yourself onto the mats. Train as hard as you can. Get something out of it. Martial arts is one of those things that the more you put into it, the more you get out of it. So train hard. Most important thing, though, is do it with a smile on your face. So have fun. And this world is all we've got. So, like I say all the time, be a good friend, not just to the people around you, but to the things around you. Make this world better for you having been in it. So there you go. Train hard, have fun, be a good friend. Take care.